Hey guys, just here to talk to you about Birth Story Academy. Are you one of the 98% of birthing people planning to birth in a hospital and you have no idea what you want and what the hospital's protocols and procedures are, how to navigate them and how to advocate for yourself? We often think about, do we want an unmedicated birth or a medicated birth? But there's so much more to it. What about a cesarean section? What about a wait and see attitude? So if you are one of the 80% of people hoping to birth without an epidural, but know that 60 to 90% of the United States population actually births with an epidural, and in that statistic, and 35% of all birthing persons have a cesarean section, whether it's planned or unplanned, that is why I built Birth Story Academy. Birth Story Academy is premier childbirth education for getting you prepped to birth in a hospital. You have over 50 decisions to make when you are in prodromal labor, early first stage, late first stage, hard labor, transition, pushing the third stage of labor. As a doula for over 17 years, I have witnessed every minute of labor from the earliest twinges and feelings through every single stage of labor, through transition, through delivery, and into the postpartum period with my clients. In Birth Story Academy, we break down every stage of labor. If you join Birth Story Academy and come on a journey with me, I become your virtual doula, and I help you plan and prepare for the birth that you want, no matter what that looks like. So if you're hoping for that unmedicated birth, I'm going to help you with those plans. If your journey takes a different path, we have plans for that too. You will feel educated and empowered whether you have spontaneous labor or an induction or a planned or unplanned cesarean, regardless of what you are desiring for medicated or unmedicated or a wait and see attitude. This course walks you through everything you need to know to prepare and to navigate hospital policies and procedures and to create birth plans that advocate for you. So let's do this. Year after year, 71% of my clients go unmedicated, 25% are induced, and a small 7% or less have a planned or unplanned cesarean section. That's the experience that built Birth Story Academy that's going to help you too. So let's do this. Head over to birthstory.com and enroll in Birth Story Academy today. Three months after my son Jagger was diagnosed with cerebral palsy from a brain injury at his birth, I remember sitting in the neurologist's office and thinking, what are our choices? Where do we go here? And all I was left with was early intervention therapy. Now, early intervention therapy works. We aggressively did physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy to help my child's right arm and right leg move as close to the left leg and the left arm as possible for someone with a brain injury. We also had to work really hard to get Jagger talking and fighting the sensory processing disorder and the dysregulation of his body from having a brain injury. And that's all that I was left with early intervention therapy, quitting my job, taking my child to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment. But there was another route that I had eliminated myself from, and that was a stem cell transplant from cord blood and tissue banking. Unfortunately, when I was pregnant, I declined. 
I remember the OB handing me the brochure and I remember thinking this is expensive and I don't know anything about it and I threw it in the trash can. Fast forward years later, sitting in that neurology office, I wished that I could go back in time, grab that cord blood banging brochure out of the trash can and pay the $35 a month to bank my child's cord blood and tissue because you don't know how their birth is going to go. We don't know if our kids are going to end up with childhood leukemia or one of the other 85 FDA-approved indications for cord, blood, and tissue banking for stem cell transplants. So I really wish someone had mentored me, like I'm trying to mentor each of you right now, about cord, blood, and tissue banking. Please visit anjahealth.com, A-N-J-A health.com, and learn about cord, blood, and tissue banking. Anja offers $100 off for Birth Story podcast listeners using code BIRTHSTORY. There's also a unique link in the show notes. Thanks for being here. Thank you for letting me educate you when no one was there to educate me. And I hope you enjoy Doula Diaries this week. Hey guys, who's ready to talk about herpes? <laughs> this is episode 110. Doula Diaries number seven. And I am back. My breast reduction went well. I'm upright. I'm recording in the studio again. Like last week, you know, I was recording laying down in bed. And I'm here to talk to you all about herpes. So this came about because lots of my clients have herpes and newsflash. I have herpes. So I'm going to go out into the world on social media as a mature 43-year-old who can talk to you about the 1998 version of me who got herpes in college and then the role that that played on my pregnancies and deliveries. And so I want to share with you about if you have herpes, what you need to know whether it's HSV-1 or HSV-2, we'll get into that if you're pregnant. I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about how if you don't have herpes, how to not get herpes. And then I'm going to talk to you about let's start with being a good human and stop making jokes about herpes because everyone has freaking herpes. Okay, let me tell you this. Herpes is not a reportable disease. Did you know that? So like we make a guess, like one in four, one in five, one in six, you'll see like all this data. But if you like really like start talking to people, basically everyone has herpes. We joke in our family that we fit the statistic because two of us so far have herpes. Like at the end of our life, it may be like five out of five, but two of five of us have herpes. Okay, so I have all of this data around me right now. So I'm going to do a little bit of like reading you some like stuff from clinical journals and then talking to you. But let's start with the beginning. Like what in the world is herpes? Okay, first of all, I need to read this little thing to you guys. Uh, Well, I'm not going to even read it. This is just a reminder that I'm not a doctor. Like everyone that listens to this podcast knows I'm a doula, right? So this is not intended to be medical information or substitute 
any information you get from your provider. And in fact, my job is to remind you that if you have herpes, to remember to tell your doctor about that. Because for some reason, so many of my clients, like their OBs and their midwives don't know they have herpes. Because like me, they got diagnosed in 1998. And that was a really long time ago. And like, Sometimes we forget what happened to our vaginas 20 years ago. So if you're pregnant, like, can we, and you've moved cities, changed practices, like, can you remember to tell your provider, your treating clinician that you have herpes and then remind yourself that I'm not a doctor and I'm just not giving you medical information today. That would make me feel better. I mean, I'm giving you information off the internet from like ACOG and from um, Obstetrics and Gynecology magazine from UT Southwestern and from another organization, ASHA. Okay. So that's where I'm reading you stuff from today. All right. Well, I guess we could start at the beginning with what is like what in the world is herpes? Do you guys want to start there? Herpes stands for herpes simplex virus. So HSV. And then there's like HSV1 and then there's HSV2. It's the most common sexually transmitted infection. Do you know that we say that now, STI, instead of STD, sexually and trans, sexually transmitted infection, instead of sexually transmitted disease. So it's the most common, even though it's not reportable and we don't track it, but it's the most common sexually transmitted infection. Transmission of the virus is important to talk about too, because it can happen between parent birthing person to baby. Okay, so that's why we want to have a conversation today about herpes that is pretty serious. And then we want to talk about what to do about it in your pregnancy and then how you transmit it or not transmit it to your baby. Okay, so HSV1 and HSV2. I, you know, I get a little bit confused between the two of these things, but one of them, HSV1, seems to be a little bit more mild and wreak less havoc on the body and typically results in cold sores, but you can get HSV on your genitals, okay? So genital herpes is most like 75% of the time, I think is HSV2 on the genitals, but like 15 to 25% of the time, it's HSV1 on the genitals, but there is a distinction this is goes way beyond my pay grade with like proteins and serums and all the stuff on how they differentiate that. But there are two different types. It's important to know what type of herpes do you have? Ask your provider. So if you have herpes and it was on your genitals, you don't know unless they told you like they took a swab, they cultured it and they said you have HSV1 or HSV2. Okay. The prevalence of HSV2 infection is about 15 to 19%. Like I said, it's all over the place. Okay. But we're guessing here 16% between 14 and 49 year olds. Fun fact, someone can correct me if this is wrong, but um, I also heard that that the herpes virus has kind of like a, a life, like it has a love life, if you will, of about 20 years. So like your first outbreak is like the absolute worst. You have no antibodies. It like totally wreaks havoc on your system, which is why it could be really bad if your baby got it during the birth. So again, that's why we're talking today on how to not give your baby herpes at birth. But your first infection or outbreak really is like the, it's the worst. And then 
uh, people will say that it just gets better, better, better. And then usually after 20 years, they don't have it anymore. Okay. Story time. I can't talk about this without telling my own story. So in 1998-ish, okay, I was in college and I was dating this guy that I loved so much, okay? And when we were dating, I hadn't had sex with anyone since 1994-ish, Okay, so I had lost my virginity, but that was like a long time before. And then like, you know, high school went by the rest of it. And then I went to college and then I fell in love. And like, I think I like made him wait like six months or something like that to like air quote fall in love before we had sex. And then like we had sex and we had lots of it. And then one day my clit hurt so bad, like the worst aching pain of my entire life. And this is what we call prodromal symptoms, okay? So prodromal symptoms are like tingling, itching, burning, like just irritable genitals. And like, I didn't know what was about to happen. I just kept going to the doctor and I was like, something's wrong with my clit. And they like looked at it. I swear I went every day for a week and they were like, looks totally normal looks completely normal. Everything looks great. We don't know what you're talking about. Have some pelvic rest. Don't have sex for a while. I like had my friends like looking down there had mirrors. I mean, we, the dorm room had all the things going on to help me. And I was like, something is wrong with my clit. Y'all, this was 1998. This is like prime sex in the city. And like, you know, we were just starting to talk really openly about our bodies and things. But anyway, I finally go to the doctor again. Let's like say it's the fifth time and I go to see a new doctor and he's fresh out of medical school and he's hot as hell. Oh, I like love him. And I like put my legs up in the stirrups and he looks at me and he's like, I'm confused, Heidi. And I'm like, what are you confused about? And he's like, have you seen your vagina? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, the whole dorm has been looking at it and my boyfriend for like the whole last week. Nothing's wrong with my vagina. They tell me it's perfect. It's beautiful. It looks great. And I'm telling you, my clit hurts so bad. Everything hurts. And then he rolls over the mirror and I'm like, whoa, shit, that wasn't there yesterday. And my whole vagina is covered in blisters. And those blisters are itching and tingling and burning and everything is hurting. But like what I was feeling for a week, the prodromal symptoms, I knew something was happening. It was like building, 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 outbreak. Okay. So initial thing. It was so, I was freaking out so bad because I was like, you know, 19 years old or something maybe 20, I don't even know, that they gave me like a um, tricyclic, like a like a drug to like make you, like that they gave you in a psych ward to like just make you out of it. I forget the name of it now, but I just remember watching Florida State football with my mom like in this like drugged zone thinking, oh my God, I have herpes and my life is over, right? This is like back when I felt like you couldn't tell people you had herpes because then no one would want to date you. But like now no one cares. Like I'm scrolling through Hinge and like everyone kind of discloses that they have herpes. It's so much cooler 20 years later. 
to be open about your herpes infection. But back then I came home and I was like crying and I like fell onto my boyfriend and I was like, you gave me herpes. And he was like, what? I didn't give you shit. (laughs) I was like, he's like, I don't have herpes. And I was like, well, I have herpes and you're the only person I've even kissed, touched, made out with, had sex with in like years. Like you're my person. And, and I said, which is the data I'm going to tell you today, is they say that the initial infection happens within two to 12 days. So I like started like going back on the calendar with him. Like, um, you're the only person who's been in my life for the last two, two years, really, but really in the last two to 12 days. So we had this thing going on that was really uncomfortable. We may have even broken up over it for a little bit because like he didn't believe he had given me herpes. And I was like, no, you definitely gave me herpes. And what I learned over the years is that there is something called asymptomatic shedding. So this is how this becomes the number one infection is that we spread this through asymptomatic shedding, meaning my hot little boyfriend I was with had no idea he had herpes simplex one, which is typically cold sores. So didn't know that, I guess didn't, maybe he didn't ever have a cold sore or maybe he didn't know that cold sores were herpes or I don't know, maybe I didn't notice it if he went down on me. Who knows? I just know that somehow through the mucosa and a braided skin, which is how the virus makes contact and spreads the infection, like that thing happened between me and him two to 12 days before the day I was sitting there in front of the super hot OB, pulling a mirror up, looking at all these blisters on my vagina. So this is like what kind of what happened. Now, the next couple of days, I learned two pieces of information that were critical. One, that I had HSV-1 and that I would probably not have another outbreak again or it would be really mild. And that was really good news for me because HSV-2 meant you could have like one of my siblings has. That means like you could have herpes like all the time over and over and over again every single month with your period, with stress, all the things. And I was just not rooting for HSV-2 which is typical genital herpes. I was super rooting for the acquisition of HSV-1 and like I won that lottery. Yes. Okay. But what I was told in 1998 from the hot doctor that had just graduated from medical school was you're going to have to have a C-section. Like that's, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to erase that from my memory because I'm 19 and I'm definitely not getting pregnant and trying to have a baby anytime soon. And I probably don't want to have kids ever. And so I'll just like erase that from my memory. But if I ever get pregnant, great C-section. Okay. Fast forward all of my 20s, all of my 30s. It's almost 20 years later. I, I did disclose my herpes status to a few people, but like for the most part, I did not disclose it to a lot of my sexual partners because I never got sick again. So I never had a herpes outbreak again, just the one. And the reason that I understand is because I have HSV-1, but I did learn that it was always possible to like how I contracted it, shed the virus, asymptomatic shedding. So every time I was in my, 
I think by the time I was in my 30s, I was like, fuck it. I have herpes. Do you want to date me? And then like the answer was like, yes, always. So but in my 20s, I was still like a little um, insecure. And so I would do suppressive therapy with acyclovir, which is Valtrex, meaning you take it every single day to prevent yourself from shedding the virus or getting an outbreak. So I did that. I don't know probably a year here, a year there, right? I never had an outbreak. I never gave, as far as I know, I never gave this virus to anyone. I'm a responsible adult, you guys. So hopefully you're sitting there right now listening to my story and you're like, me too. Well, I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully you're like, skip, I don't have herpes. But if you if you have herpes, you're listening to this episode, okay? So my client texts me the other day and she's kind of like, hey, I filled out your form. You know, I have herpes. What does that mean? Like, why'd you even ask me that question? Right. Do I have to have a C-section? And I'm like, no. Okay. So this is critical information in 2022. Okay. All these years later, I had two vaginal births, even though I was told I was going to have a C-section. The data that I'm reading all over the place and every dual client tells you, if you ask your provider the question, do I need a C-section? It's probably not, right? A C-section can't completely prevent herpes transmission. But it does decrease the risk of your baby getting like the herpes virus at birth. So that's the main question, right? Like, will I need a C-section? This is why I put it in my form to talk to my clients about it, to also talk to them about suppressive therapy. But here I was, 36, 37 years old, getting ready to have, well, I was pregnant and I remember going to this the same doctor. I stayed with him all these years. And I was like, hey, I'm pregnant. So like when we have to schedule a C-section because I'm a doula and I'd like to have an unmedicated birth. And he was like, oh, Heidi, so much research. There's suppressive therapy. We're just going to start you on that drug again, Valtrex, acyclovir, at 36 weeks and try to suppress the virus. Once you go into labor, Heidi, we're going to carefully examine your vagina and your genitals for lesions. If we see something suspicious like a blister, then we will talk about having a C-section. But if not, like, no, you just have a vaginal birth. And I was like, mind blown. Like, why didn't we have this conversation between the ages of 20 and 37? Like, how did that many years go by? And no one ever let me know that herpes research had, you know, risen and drugs had come out and I was going to be able to have a vaginal birth. I mean, this is why I'm doing this, you guys. If you have herpes, you can have a vaginal birth. There's a couple things we need to talk about. One, talk to your doctor about suppressive therapy, like my doctor talked to about me. 36 weeks gestation and on taking acyclovir Valtrex. Now, that being said, you can go to like drugs.com or like, I don't know who makes Valcyclovir, GlaxoSmithKline maybe, but you can go to their website and you can see that I think it's pregnancy category um, not assigned, meaning like 
I can't tell you if this drug is like safe. I just know that there's lots and lots of trials and people on it. And so it's like unclassified, but it is used and recommended. It's also used and recommended in breastfeeding. I do know that the dosage of Valtrex in milk, like after you take the drug, it's like one to 2% of a typical infant dosage. And so they say like they're you wouldn't expect the baby would have any side effects if they're breastfed, if the parent is taking Valtrex. So I know that it is safe to take at the end of pregnancy. I'm going to air quote safe because I'm not the CDC over here. But like according to like drugs.com and the Valtrex.com, like it's used and safe in breastfeeding and you shouldn't expect any side effects. Let's go back to wrapping up my story and then talking about how to not how to manage herpes during your pregnancy. So um, data shows that if you have herpes, there's 75% of pregnant women who have herpes expect to have an outbreak during your pregnancy. Now that doesn't necessarily mean a genital outbreak. Okay. It could be a cold sore in your mouth. It could be some, some people get lesions on like their butt, their inner thigh, like not necessarily like their clit, labia, all that kind of stuff, right? So if it's not in the vaginal birth canal, like we're not as worried about your baby contracting herpes at a vaginal birth. So you're going to be looking for those prodromal symptoms. You're going to go on suppressive therapy. If you have an outbreak, you're going to probably take some sort of medicine, And then at 36 weeks on, it is the recommendation if you want to have a vaginal birth to go on suppressive therapy. Then it is recommended when you are in labor to have a vaginal exam and have your genitals carefully examined for lesions. Now, you guys know I talk all about not having vaginal exams. This is not one to skip, okay? So just for fairness... When I sold pharmaceuticals, we used to call it fair balance. The drugs that are approved for the treatment of genital herpes are um, acyclovir, valacyclovir, and FAM cyclovir, however you pronounce these words. Okay, so just for fairness. There are some topical antiviral therapies, but they have not been shown to have any benefit against neonatal herpes. Okay, so... Because neonatal herpes is a very serious and fatal condition, like if your baby were to get herpes, the other steps that we want to take besides being in labor and not having a C-section is monitoring like, well, when when would we want to have a C-section, right? You would want to have a C-section if you had an active lesion in the birth canal. Now, neonatal herpes is so very rare, less than 0.1% of babies in the United States are each year get neonatal herpes. And you just heard me talk one in four, one in five, one in six, let's say 25% of women have genital herpes. 75% of those 25% are going to have an outbreak sometime in their pregnancy or or close to delivery. And less than 0.1% of babies born in the U.S. each year get neonatal herpes. It is so super rare. So we are talking to our provider. We're letting them know our history. We're having an examination. We're taking suppressive therapy. If we have an outbreak, the safest course may be a cesarean section. I cannot tell you how amazing it felt that day sitting there with my husband 
and finding out I didn't just automatically have to have a C-section 17 years later when I had thought that whole time that the herpes was just a curse that just led you straight to the operating room. For your birth plans, though, there are a couple of things that you want to talk to your doctor about to consider, right? Not breaking your bag of water unless it's absolutely medically necessary, okay? Because your bag of water can help protect your baby against the virus in the birth canal. A fetal scalpel monitor, it makes a tiny puncture in the baby's scalp and it can allow herpes virus to enter. So we want to use external monitoring if at all possible. Same thing with vacuum, forceps, anything that can cause a breakage in the scalp or skin could allow the virus, if it's present in the vaginal canal, to enter the baby, okay? And then after your birth, you want to watch your baby very closely for about three weeks, okay? Rash, fever, crankiness, lack of appetite. These are mild symptoms. So they can range from blindness, deafness, seizures, brain injury, organ damage for a really severe case. And then you can have minor symptoms too. But it's really important to be cognizant if you are a carrier of HSV-1 or HSV-2 of neonatal herpes and not passing that on to your baby. Now, When we get home, we have a baby, life goes on. Maybe in six months from now, we get an outbreak. 12 months from now, 18 months from now, we get an outbreak. If you have herpes, be it cold sores or genital herpes, just make sure whenever you're feeling the prodromal symptoms, maybe you go on suppressive therapy or if you're having active lesions, they can only get spread to your child by contact. So we don't want to like touch a lesion and forget to wash our hands and then touch our child, right? So frequent hand washing, covering the lesions with dressings, you hear all the time. In fact, I was just talking to my girlfriend last night on the phone who was asking for pain medicine because her cold sores. And I'm like, who gave you herpes? Like, when did you get HSV-1? I don't remember you having HSV-1. And she was like... I guess from my mom, she was like, all my siblings have it. My mom has it. So, you know, definitely like if you have a big old cold sore on your mouth and you kiss your kid on the mouth, like now you're just passing HSV-1 onto your child who's someday going to go to college and go down on a girl named Heidi and then she's going to get HSV-1 on her vagina and for 20 years think she was going to have to have a C-section. See how that goes? Thanks a lot, mom. So. In all seriousness, I hope this episode was helpful and informative to help you understand the difference between HSV-1, HSV-2, suppressive therapy, the fact that you don't automatically have to have a C-section, and some things that you can do if you are at risk for passing herpes on to your baby in pregnancy. Now, just in case I didn't drill it home, if you are in the middle of your pregnancy, And 75% of you, you're going to get an outbreak. It's going to happen. Okay. My advice is to go on your Valtrex and then just stay on it. Just stay on it all the way through delivery. Again, I'm not a doctor. Don't claim to be. I'm just a girl with herpes and that's what I did. Now, so many clients and they all want to do placenta encapsulation. 
So I put it out to all the placenta encapsulators on the interwebs. And they have said placenta encapsulation is totally fine. That the way that I just described that herpes is transmitted through the mucosa and the skin abrasions and that type of thing, like that has nothing to do with the placenta inside of you. Okay. Now, if you have an active herpes outbreak and the placenta and the baby come through and touch that lesion, hell no. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But I mean, I'd probably not do that. But that's a far, if it's 0.1% go to the baby, imagine the tiny percentage that would go to the placenta. Okay. So um, as long as you are having a vaginal birth and no one's seeing any active lesions and you're on suppressive therapy, encapsulate away that placenta. Okay. Well, that's it. It's all I know about herpes, y'all. Doula Diaries until Thursday. Talk soon. Just a reminder, you can go to Anja Health at AnjaHealth.com, A-N-J-A Health.com. And there you will find a beautiful experience for parents. It's modern. It's warm. The CEO has a personal story with a child with cerebral palsy also. So the community at Anja Health is very family-like. It's all about honoring Catherine's brother. And the science is there. The science is the future. Consider using Anja Health for your cord blood banking by using code BIRTHSTORY when you check out. And I've also left a unique link for you in the show notes. Until next week.